Hey friends, Dominique here. Just wanted to give a little heads up that unfortunately there was some weird audio thing going on. So there's a little bit of a clicking behind Nicole's uh, track during this episode. Hope it doesn't bug you. We tried our best to get rid of it, but you know, sometimes these kinds of things happen. So enjoy the episode and hopefully we'll have the audio fixed next week. Hey friends, and welcome to the Modern Medusa Podcast. Welcome back to the Modern Medusa podcast. This is your host, Dominique DeFalco of DeFalco Reptiles. Super excited for today's guest. Um, this is a woman I've been trying to get on for a while and life's been kind of crazy and I've been kind of crazy. So like, you know, we finally figured it out. But um, today we're going to be speaking with Nicole Tam, who uh, really, she kind of like flies under the radar when it comes to the social media scene, but she's got some really, really awesome animals that she's working with. And I can't wait to talk to her more about it. So hello, Nicole. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, Dominique. Finally good to get to talk with you. Sorry. Like you said, life's been kind of hectic. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Right. It's also the weekend. So you think you have extra time, but then you're like, wait a second. No, I don't. Oh, my God. It's the weekend, but I forgot like what day of the week it is. And on Saturday mornings, I have to move my car from my parking lot to like a different parking lot because there's a farmer's market on my street. Uh-huh. Um, so I definitely woke up this morning and I'd forgotten to move my car and my oh, car no. was trapped in the farmer's market. So oh, I had to walk no. to my parents. <laughs> I was oh, like, no. I was totally too embarrassed to ask them if I could like back out into the farmer's market. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, do this to yourself. So yeah. stupid. Oh, just crazy day. <laughs> but uh, what a start to the morning. I know, but this is a good way to, you know, round out the afternoon. Nicole, I gave a little, you know, Brief intro. You like snakes. It's kind of, I feel like that's all I knew about you before Travis Wyman introduced us, but you sent me this awesome bio about the super cool things you're doing. So I kind of want to let people know who you are. Can you give me like the, who is Nicole Tam overview really quick? Okay. Yeah. So um, as stated, my name is Nicole Tam and I originally first started out and sort of still am a pretty big bug person actually before I got into reptiles. I didn't own my first reptile until I think I was 13. And that was my African fat tail gecko. And being the little kid I was, I got him from PetSmart. He's a big adult. And he lived with me for over 13 years. I think he was wow. with me for about 16 years before he finally passed away. Wow. He must and, have yeah. he must have been old. <laughs> Yeah, he was really old. He was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he was a grumpy little guy, but I loved him very much. And my first snake I got a few years after him, and he's actually still with me. He's a California king snake, and he is going close to, I think, 17 years old now in my care. Oh, my God. He keeps trying to eat my fingers. Like, that's <laughs> never changed. That has never changed. That. Yeah, at least you know he's true to himself. <laughs> So you said that you are a big bug person, which I think is cool. Did you have insects or any sort of like inverts before you got your first reptile? Kind of like half successfully because my mother is terrified of them. That was going to be my next question. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> I had to beg her for years and years to get the pets that I first started with. Mm-hmm. And what were those like she, that you first started with? So I, my first pet ever, I would say, it was probably a silkworm. I got oh, him a little from silkworm. My, yeah, I got him from a teacher when I used to take uh, Chinese classes. And she's like, do you like caterpillars? And I'm like, yes. And she's like, okay, have this one. And she hands me this big, fat silkworm caterpillar. And she's like, mm-hmm. so all he eats are the mulberry leaves. And he'll turn into a moth one day. He'll spin a little cocoon. And when that happens, just let me know. And I'm like, okay. And I obviously named him Silky because it was the first thing yeah. that came to my mind. As you should. And mm-hmm. he became a really fat little moth. I was so proud of myself. Was she giving them out to a lot of students or were you just kind of, you know, she was like, yeah, that looks like a girl who'd like moths. I was the only one who got one. She brought me <laughs> to class one day and I was like the one who just kept staring at them. Yeah. She, she's like, that, that, that girl's going to be into the weird, creepy, crawly stuff. Let's get her started yeah. now. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> As I kept growing up, my mom was like, Nicole, why do you like all these weird things? And my dad's like, what do you mean? She's always like these weird things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's my parents too. When I first got into the reptiles, like more heavily as like, you know, in terms of keeping myself, I had to remind my parents, I'm like, well, do you not remember? I would just bring things home all the time. <laughs> like, do you right? not remember it's my like- sister's? Yeah, my sister was, would go butterfly hunting and like catch butterflies, and I would like catch snakes in the rock pile. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's like a favorite childhood activity—just catching lizards and snakes in the rock piles. <laughs> yeah, I'm lucky that I like lived somewhere where there's just going to be garter snakes and stuff because I didn't care. I just picked it all up. Yeah, same here. Honestly, I didn't see my first snake for such a long time. And when it was, it it was one of the sharp tail snakes here in California, the slug Mm -hmm. eaters. Oh, very Yeah, I found three of those suckers and I was like, wow, these are so cute. And my mom let out the biggest scream when I brought them into the house. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) We always had a no kitchen rule. Couldn't bring them in the kitchen. All she said was she saw me get really excited after I lifted up a rock grab mm-hmm. something and start running into the house and when she saw what was in my hands she was like no oh no 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 don't come any closer so like obviously that that fascination with bugs and like the creepy crawly started when you were younger but with getting your first reptile at 13 was it kind of like an impulse thing had you been doing a lot of research and you know what you wanted or did you just kind of want any reptile that your parents would let in the house So I really did actually want a California king snake, and Mm -hmm. I was reading a bunch of the old reptile books and whatnot to just kind of figure out how to take care of them. And I was planning which reptile shows to go to, which ended up being the San Jose one was where Mm -hmm. I got him. And I cannot even remember who I got him from. Actually, I just remember going with my mom. She was terrified, but she was supporting oh me. Yeah, I love <laughs> because that. she basically had me prove that I was ready to take care of this animal for about half a year before we decided to just drive out there and attend oh. the show. How did you find out about the reptile show? Because I feel like, like you said, with, with the African fat tail, you went and got it from PetSmart and you wouldn't do that again in the future. But when did you realize that there was more of a community around it and that you could go to like shows specifically dedicated to reptiles? I remember somehow I found out about the reptiles magazine and I would read some issues of them at mm-hmm. one of the pet stores yeah. because they would have them in stock and I would just go in and wander and read the back sections of the magazines. Yeah. Never and pay for would... it, but just read as much as you can while you're standing right. in the store. Mm-hmm. I get it. Right, And I would just <laughs> Try to remember, like, when were the locations and dates of those shows and just kind of plan accordingly. 
that's super nice and that's so nice of your mom to go ready. With i was like mom can we go and she's like yeah okay yeah <laughs> like i guess we can talk about it right yeah You're like fine <laughs> well i think a lot of parents i mean obviously i'm going to be generalizing but i think a lot of parents are kind of like the oh well if you do your research and they think that like we're not going to do our research right you know and like maybe it'll just be like another thing that the kid is into for a week and a half and then suddenly you're like oh no i'm spending my weekend to it (laughs) yeah it's like i'm spending these weekends with all these weird reptile people it's like yeah you are you're gonna spend every weekend like that and thousands and thousands of dollars doing it (laughs) right right Oh, gosh. So you got the first California king snake. And can I ask about how old you were at that point? I was either 15 or 16. I can't remember too well. Yeah. So like, you're, you know, you're, you're like a young adult. Yeah. From there, what did it look like as far as growing your collection? Did you get more reptiles or did you start to look back into inverts more? And then were you keeping any inverts at that point? Or were you just still kind of into them i was into them i was on a very strict pet limit at my parents house so still living with them at that age yeah and mom was like absolutely no other pets (laughs) i did try to keep a field cricket before like several in succession Mm -hmm. but obviously they were loud because i caught the males Yeah. And mom could not stand the noise. Exactly. Yes. But they were actually really fun to keep. The big gorilla crickets, Mm -hmm. like they were loud, but they were actually really fun to interact with. They loved to eat almost anything you could hand them. Mm -hmm. They were just pretty cool. I liked them. And were you doing the typical like here's a jar full of pieces of grass I ripped up from the from the front lawn and a stick to sustain this animal? Or were you kind of like, oh, I actually do know what crickets need and what they want. And were you able oh to- Oh my goodness. Or you just kind of like, <laughs> yes. you know, I, feel like, I feel like we massacred a lot of insects when I was a kid by just putting them in jars, you know? Oh my goodness. The same yeah. for you. <laughs> so with the crickets, I actually had those giant seaweed snack jars that you can find at like a little Asian market. Mm-hmm. And I would poke a bunch of holes into the top mm-hmm. and I kind of did a combination of grab whatever sticks and stuff. And I kind of know what I'm doing. I just put a bunch of dirt in the jars and then I would unsuccessfully try to like keep grass a lot yeah. in the jars yeah. mm-hmm. and there's some sticks, but they did pretty well. They never died in my care. I was just forced to let them go because mom was oh. like, get rid of them. They're so noisy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Good for the garden anyways, just put them back. <laughs> so we would when i was like younger in the summers we would catch cicadas because i'm in ohio oh. or i was in ohio i'm in kentucky now and you're so lucky i never got to see those okay they're fun and i remember as a kid like we would catch them all over the place and my mom would be like it was like for two weeks out of the summer we would just have jars of cicadas on our back porch because my mom wouldn't let them in the house because they were loud and gross <laughs> I mean, they're not that gross, but like we, it was just not the best, obviously. And we would have these like jars of cicadas and, oh God, this is horrible. We'd like flick the sides and make them buzz. And yeah, just not great. <laughs> but, okay, kids, when we're kids, we don't really know all the time what we're doing. Yeah. Well, I just, I so distinctly remember being like, okay, I guess 17 years ago, because it was a 17 year cicadas or whatever. Uh-huh. I was seven years old. And we were driving to a drive-in movie and it was like a little bit like outside of the city compared to where we lived. And we're driving on this road and you look over and you see people's mailboxes and the cicadas were so 
there were so many cicadas that the entire mailbox would be covered in like a swarm. Wow. It was just like things were alive and they were pulsating with cicadas and and we would go (laughs) cicada town now. Yeah, we would go to the park and catch cicadas and then just, you know, release them. I don't know. (laughs) It was like, it was like every new cicada we caught was like this incredible, crazy thing. And my mom's like, yeah, they're literally falling from the sky. Like they're very easy to catch. (laughs) Like It's not that difficult. Yeah, they're kind of slow when they want to be, which is most of the time. Yeah, they're slow. And I do appreciate cicadas. But man, I hate the cleanup after cicadas. Like, you know, when they do their deed and they're done, like it is a mess. It's a mess. That's what I've heard. It's all over the sidewalks and like there's just dead cicadas everywhere. There's dead cicadas in my windows, like still. Oh, no. Yeah, because they got like trapped between the window pane. How? I literally do not know. And so now I can't get them and I just have to like look at their bodies. Like the greatest mysteries. Like, how did you get there? Yeah, I know. It's like that. Cicadas and cats both end up in every single place you don't want them to be. Like, yeah. But we, when we were like right around that same summer, I just remember that summer so specifically because we went to a big like local pool and we'd gotten passes to go in at this like really nice pool that we didn't belong to, but my mom's friend did. And my Mm -hmm. older sister was jumping off the high dive and a cicada got stuck in her hair. Like it flew into her hair as she was jumping. Oh no. And you know how like nine-year-old girls have like the rattiest, most horrible hair that's totally not yes. well cared for? Like that thing was in her hair. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. It's so not that's enough part about of me. Hair. <laughs> yeah. It was literally a part of her hair. She, she like came up from the water like screaming. Like, ma'am! <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. And like, she's, you know, all the normal kids are going around and and playing in the pool. And I was opening the pool filters and taking out the cicadas. (laughs) Like, be free. (laughs) Right? So with your mom being kind of afraid of, of the insects specifically, did you ever have the opportunity to keep them outside of the crickets and the silkworm and such? Or were you kind of just confined to your your snake and your fat tail lizard until you were able to move out? Yeah, I was mostly confined to those two until I moved out. And when I moved out, I got my first tarantula. Oh, what'd you get? I got a curly hair. The, yeah. Right. She's still with me. Oh, she's how old is she? I actually don't know because I got her as an adult or sub adult, but mm-hmm. she's been with me about, I want to say, seven years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the curly hair, was that just something that you read was a good beginner species or were you really interested in it? Yeah, I heard it was a really good beginner species and I didn't want a rose hair. And I really liked the fuzzy look of the tarantula overall. Why, why not a rose hair? I did work with one at a museum before. And honestly, I just didn't find them super spectacular looking. And I was like, eh, I want something fuzzy, (laughs) super, super fuzzy. (laughs) So you obviously like worked with a ton of different species, like since you got your first curly hair. And Mm -hmm. I imagine that you love it, obviously, and she's still with you and such. But looking back, as far as your education, when it came to getting into tarantulas at the beginning, would you have limited yourself to the quote unquote beginner friendly species? Because I think when you think of people getting their first tarantula, it's a curly hair, it's a rose hair, it's a red knee, it's, you know, pink toe, like there's a few basic species. And did you find Mm -hmm. yourself kind of falling into that? Like, oh, I only want to try one of these. Or were you genuinely interested in the species? I genuinely do like the curly hairs. I think there are Mm -hmm 
solid favorite. Mm-hmm. But I did want to branch out into Arboreos later on. But I'm really glad I didn't do that as like my first tarantula because some of them are really out there. You touch the container, sometimes they just spiral around like a furry tornado. I'm like, oh no, it's one of those days. Oh yeah. Jeez. I haven't worked with almost any tarantulas. I'm, I really want one. I want a Gramostola pulchra, which is the Brazilian That's black. always a good one. I That's love those. Like- my favorite but the thing is this is so stupid i'm not afraid of spiders and bugs but Mm -hmm. they still like give me the willies it's like an absolute just total reaction outside of my brain it's like a very physical reaction you know Uh uh-huh yeah Um, and and so i don't want to sling (laughs) i don't want to sling because they're so small i know sometimes they're terrifyingly small yeah and and they'll sell them at like one eighth of an inch i'm like that is way too small Yeah, for some reason in my head, I'm like, how will this ever stay in the jar? I'm going to find it on my face. Which, like, if it was an adult tarantula, I don't know why I'm more comfortable around that than I am a sling. I think it's because the slings, they can be pretty fragile. And you're just like, oh, my goodness, if I breathe, it's going to blow away. (laughs) Right. Yeah, It's going to be gone forever. I think it's easy, especially with invert people, like people who keep a lot of inverts to kind of like be like, oh, I got this one tarantula. I could literally fit 20 more on the shelf. Let's just do it now. Did you kind of go down that path of like getting one and then suddenly getting a bunch more? Or were you more gradual and deliberate with building your collection? Oh, no, I definitely got like a bunch more after that, but definitely not as extreme as I've seen some other people do because after a while, I'm like, okay, I kind of know my limits Mm -hmm. and what exactly I like in the tarantulas. Mm-hmm. And they just really cut down the list from there. Saying so now that I've had a bunch of mine also mature out into males, that's mm. kind of stopped me from wanting to get more because I'm like, I'm just going to wait for those guys to just live their lives out. Yeah. <laughs> When you first got your tarantulas, and like you said, they now matured into males, which for people who don't know, in general, significantly shortens the lifespan compared to females, right? Yeah, yeah, very and drastically. Is that, a, is that across all species of tarantulas? Yes, I would say that most of the new world terrestrial males, they will live longer than the old world and especially arboreal males. Like, okay. I've had some of the arboreal old world males literally live less than a year from really? sling to maturity. And they get to maturity that quickly? They can. It also depends on temperature and how often you're feeding the spider. That can speed mm-hmm. things up too. Yeah. And so I assume like when you're feeding, are you, I guess I've mostly seen tarantulas kept at like room temperature. Do you have them at a higher temperature or or anything special with, in that regard to encourage faster growth? Or do you kind of keep it more room temperature? We keep it more or less room temperature during the day, but during the night it drops a few degrees. I mm-hmm. also, we don't feed too heavily mm-hmm. because a lot of the spiders I've seen, unfortunately, they get overfed. Yeah. And we try to aim for having their abdomen size around the same size as their cephalothorax or the, the head area. That's mm-hmm. a, kind of a good indication of like where to aim for. So is that where they will like carry their weight essentially? I guess I I wouldn't know how to identify an overweight tarantula. Yeah, you can tell an overweight tarantula if the abdomen is like significantly bigger than that cephalothorax area. Mm -hmm. And if the tarantula gets particularly obese, it will start to basically the abdomen will start to drag. You will notice some weird like chafing areas at the bottom. Mm -hmm. They can get issues with molting. 
obviously when the tree entrails mm-hmm. are going to pre-malt, the abdomen will swell a bit. So mm-hmm. sometimes people think that's like a tarantula that's obese, but that's not exactly the case. Obesity can just make things much more risky for them, especially if they like to climb. If they fall, that increases their chance of basically bursting from the impact. Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess I've heard of that, but I haven't really thought of it. It's kind of horrific. Have you seen it happen? Yeah, I've seen it happen at least three times during some museum outreach events. Oh, wow. That's really, that's got to be. Yeah, that's why I don't really like, you know, tarantulas being handled too often, especially in public areas like that. So it makes me kind of nervous. Yeah, I sound so ignorant, but it's just truly because this is a topic I really don't know much about. Oh, don't but worry. obviously with a lot of tarantula species, you can't handle them because there are some that are, you know, more significant venom wise than others, or like you said, at greater risk of falling and getting injured. How do you monitor the health of your tarantula if it's a species that one is often hands off, but then two, like you don't necessarily see a lot because I think with the tarantulas I'm used to, like they go into their burrow or they go into their web and they just kind of hang out there forever so there are like a few ways to do that i have found out that the more cover you give the tarantula or the more substrate you can get i see the fossorial and the secretive sort of arboreals they do tend to come out more often because they feel Hmm. more secure yeah and container size helps too if they're cramped in a too small enclosure they kind of tend to guess perceive that as just the burrow just the hiding spot right and so they just kind of hunker down there they don't really come out and explore but we keep most of our fossorials and our boreals in pretty large containers like especially the pukilotheria and even the gramostola and they do come out we see them peeking out once in a while or just walking around at night Hmm. it's really cool i guess that's what helps me monitor them and i don't have to like bother them to get out of their burrows or whatnot yeah because i guess there's not much care that can be done like i guess i wonder if there are any any sorts of parasites or diseases that you can see with tarantulas that are common in captivity or is it and i guess there's not much care for them if there is right no usually when they get parasitized it's kind of the end of it for them that's kind of the horrific part yeah so when you're getting tarantulas like say you go to a show and you want to you're you see i feel like when i go to reptile shows i often see tables that have like thousands of tarantulas on them right Mm -hmm. is there still a common market for imported tarantulas or are most like captive bred it depends on the species i would say for example tarantulas like from the genus Pukilotheria, the majority of them, if not almost all, maybe 99.9% of them are mm-hmm. all captive bred. I don't think there are any allowed to be exported from their native country anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I'm pretty sure smuggling still happens. I don't think yeah. that's such a huge issue though, especially with most species landing on the sites index. Yeah. For what I remember and certain recent laws. But if you're considering stuff from the Afonopelma genus in the United States, like Chalcodes, a mm-hmm. lot of them are wild caught collected in the States and then brought to the show tables. That's why you see a lot of big adult looking ones available. Yeah. And are those usually males that are like caught while trying to find a female? I'm not too sure because I haven't talked to those people, but mm-hmm. just from the times I've gone to the shows and actually asking permission to, you know, pick up the deli cup and look. Yeah. A lot of them appear to be males, but they weren't mature yet. So they weren't, let's say like wandering around for looking for females. Mm -hmm. 
with the occasional female, I think either collectors are really lucky, maybe find a few walking around, or they flush their burrows and collect the spiders that way. Oh, I don't really know really? how it goes. Huh. I yeah. guess because I've seen, I haven't been to the Southwest at all. So I've never like seen tarantulas in the wild, which I really want to. But from what I've seen online, like it seems like usually you'll see the males out and about more than females, like particularly yeah. during breeding season. But I guess I never considered that they would somehow lure females out. And that seems like very traumatic and dangerous for the animals to flood their burrows. Yeah, yeah. Especially since I've seen people breeding those species right. in captivity like pretty readily. I'm like, there mm-hmm. doesn't seem too much of a need to keep mass collecting wild ones. But I don't know. At the same time, I've heard from people that those species are so very common in the wild. Like it's not exactly putting a dent. But yeah, I can't say I'm an expert in that because I haven't talked to a lot of people in the tarantula community, honestly. Yeah. I try to avoid talking to those people. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess it's kind of unpleasant. <laughs> I think you can find that in most species or or genus specific communities or just communities in general, right? Um, right? You're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm like trying to be diplomatic with what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's like sometimes you just have to hold your tongue. I wanted to transition a little bit because I'm talking to you a lot about tarantulas, but when we spoke earlier before we got started, you kind of sent. I usually have people send like a little bio, and so. I have a good idea of of what to talk about when we bring them in. And one of the things that you said you're working with are African giant millipedes. Do you, Yeah. how did you get into that? So I used to volunteer at a entomology museum, actually, at my university campus. And we were mainly in charge of not only maintaining the dead specimen collection, but the live animals. Mm -hmm. And they first started out with a pair of African giant millipedes. And I've worked with them before at another museum back when I was a teenager. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I love these guys. And yeah, they they had babies, but after they died, we thought, you know, that was the end of it. And when we were like trying to sift through the dirt of their cage, we found itty bitty tiny babies. And these things were so small. They were like the grain of rice that you would see. Yeah. We were like, oh, shoot. All right, let's put all the substrate back in. Hopefully we didn't disturb it too much and just basically let them grow out. Just throw Mm -hmm. vegetables and fruits and leaves in there once in a while and just, you know, be patient. And turns out, yeah, there were a bunch. We kept raising them and raising them. That's how it started. And you got to take some home or were you just fascinated from there yeah. and then started your own? Okay. Very cool. All right. Yeah, I want we you got to permission more. to do so. <laughs> I, need to, I need to hear you talk more about this entomology museum because that sounds incredible. And I know that you recently graduated from with a degree. Um, is that correct? Yeah. Or back is- in 2015. <laughs> yeah. 2015. And what did you study? Entomology. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So like, yeah, you are like a total, that's what I thought. I was like, I was like, was it biology? No. So when you got your degree in entomology, were there requirements that you work within the museum that was with your program? Or was that just something you had already been doing? Cause you said that you volunteered a bit when you were younger as well. And then what did you, what all did your uh, duties, what are, were they there? 
So basically, I started volunteering there because I thought it would be my first good experience just kind of working hands-on in a collection museum. And I wanted to figure out like if this is something I want to do in the future or if it wasn't. And just learning the basics of you know, putting on locality information and collection mm-hmm. info on each specimen. That's very important, mm-hmm. by the way, to kind of track like who collected it, when they collected it, where, and yeah. what they think they identified it as. Okay, so then quick question, just a clarifying question. You said a collection museum. What does that mean? So it's almost, it kind of functions almost like a library for insects, except instead of books, Mm -hmm. you have the physical like preserved specimen usually put on a pin. Sometimes they're put in like little alcohol vials Mm -hmm. and they get a special little tag with Mm -hmm. their collection information on it. And they're usually sorted by order, family, genus, and if it's possible species. Okay, I guess I don't know what, would you call them specimens that you're working with? Yeah, specimens. So with the specimens that you're working with, are these generally animals that have like lived in facilities where they died and then were given to you guys? Or were these field collected specimens like from research studies? The majority of them are field collected research specimens. Very rarely do we get like collection captive collected ones because those besides providing a physical body they don't really tell us exactly where they came from in their Mm -hmm. native range nor Mm -hmm. like what season were they found in oh so you get like all useful for certain studies yeah but it won't provide us like sort of in habitat sort of details yeah no absolutely that's got to be very interesting to like be able to see you know, what the general temperature and climate was from where the specific specimen you're looking at is coming from. Mm-hmm. When it comes to a collection like that, obviously things are changing. Like I feel like almost daily when it comes to legality of what animals were allowed to bring into the country or, or export out and such. Do you have to take that into consideration when you are looking for new specimens to add to the collection or when you're like looking at ones you already have to make sure it's like legal for you to possess them? Like within the facility? Yeah, it takes a lot of paperwork to get permission to go collect. And depending on the countries, it can be either very straightforward or nearly impossible. (laughs) And what makes it more difficult is, well, also depending what kind of insect you're working with, etc. It can be very seasonal dependent on what you're looking for. And if you miss that seasonal window, you might as well just wait until next year. And then hopefully the permit or whatever you need gets through. The hassle from what I've heard. Hmm? Yeah. Are there specific types of insects that like in general are more difficult to like be allowed to field collect versus others? Like I can imagine that it's pretty straightforward to field collect like butterflies in the US, but that would probably be a species that's really hard to get to in other countries. Does it really just depend on this the country to country or are there general groups of insects that are harder to obtain for collections like this? I think in terms of legalities, it does depend from country to country because I know some insects have landed either on sites list or other things or are considered agricultural pests, right. even though them being dead definitely does, you know, kind of help with transporting them. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. But also like trying to collect with the proper collecting foods, which is usually ethanol. And usually flight lines don't like ethanol because that's flammable. <laughs> 
Oh yeah. I get, I never thought of that. It's really tricky for people who are going out to the field and don't have the facilities to process the specimen right on the spot for DNA, for example, Mm -hmm. and they want to bring them back to their labs for wet lab work. That can, that can be a little bit tricky. Yeah. So when you say process the specimen, like on site, say you find like a millipede or, or a tarantula or something that like someone's trying to do research on and wants to bring back, like what is processing the specimen? Processing can be like how you store it and in what form? Like, do you want to store the whole insect? Do you want to just take parts of it back? Do you want to use a lab at the site, process it into DNA or prepare it for RNA extraction, et cetera, and bring Mm -hmm. that back? It depends. Oh, I forgot. I almost forgot. Some countries can be really, really annoying when it comes to collection permits. They want sometimes to ask us exactly the exact number of specimens that you're bringing back. And if you're collecting something like microhymenoptera, like really tiny parasitoid wasps, that can be really, really annoying to try and yeah. like, like, I can't guess. <laughs> to have to, yeah, because I mean, but are they going to count all of them? Like, right? Maybe. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how some of my former coworkers managed to do that stuff. Oh my gosh. Uh-huh. An absolute pain in the ass. So what is the benefit of of like going and collecting whole specimen versus using a molt, which like, obviously, if you don't have to kill the animal, it's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's easier in that regard to use a molt. So why would mm-hmm. you use the full specimen over the molt? So usually the full specimen, especially the smaller the insect gets, if you use the specimen for DNA extraction, especially if you're working with sort of phylogenetics, mm-hmm. you can use basically the whole thing to get a significant quantity of either DNA or RNA, or RNA you're extracting. Mm-hmm. The whole specimen can also provide you with all the sorts of morphological details you want to do, especially for taxonomy. And you're writing a key to try and key something out to species. Yeah. And what else? For the bigger specimens, when you're doing those DNA or RNA extractions, you can, for example, they're so big, all you just need is a leg. And if that sample failed, you can just take another leg. <laughs> And so on and so forth. <laughs> yeah. With the micro ones, it's like you use the whole thing. You're like, oh, shoot, I really hope I collected more of this if it didn't work. So I've I've never considered, this is so dumb. This is a very dumb statement I'm about to make, so I'll preface it. I've never considered that like you would want to extract DNA from an insect or an invert of any type. Are you doing that for research to like determine the taxonomy and figure out like what species it is, or are most of those able to be identified like visually? It's hit or miss with different insects. And don't worry, it's not a dumb thing to say. Thank so, you. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. Sometimes it depends on what kind of things you're looking for. Like the lab I used to, we were looking for proteins we were looking for in CC flies. They're in the genus Glossina, mm-hmm. Glossina, however you say it. And we were looking for, I think, what genes could be used for milk gland expression or whatnot, or milk protein. I think milk protein. Wait, how was that related between the two of those? Oh, I was going to say like what you want to extract for DNA. Oh, but okay. Wait a second. <laughs> but other people will extract DNA just to look for different markers or whatnot. This is where I'm not too strong in this certain knowledge. That's more like my husband's field. Oh yeah, no worries. And they're doing, they're using that information for sort of taxonomical purposes, phylogenetics, and see what's more related to what and how closely. Mm-hmm. So then, 
as you can see, I don't know too much about that. <laughs> so oh my, it's well, you know, like work. a million times more than me. So. Details. I'm more yeah. on the disease stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, don't worry about it. I appreciate it because that was the next thing I was going to pop into is I want to talk more about your research. Hey guys, this is Jeremy Turgeon from Brassman Reptiles and the Reptile Talk podcast. If you're looking for another awesome source of reptile content, come on over and check Rob and I out. Talking with reptile keepers from around the block and around the world. New episodes air every week and are available on the Brassman Reptiles YouTube channel and all major podcast streaming platforms. We'll see you in the next episode. Are you tired of changing a reptile's UVB light every six months? Well, VivTech Products has the perfect bulb for you. The VivTech SureSun Series UVB and UVA bulb has a typical four-year lifespan with no UVB degradation. That means that your pet will always have the UVB and UVA they need, all while you save up to $400 over the life of the bulb. VivTech, providing a better life for reptiles in our homes and the wild through innovative husbandry. Enjoy the rest of the episode. And what you actually um, participated in and, and you know, what you do. So you mentioned that you, okay, tell me, like you say you're into the disease stuff. What does that mean? Tell me what you do so we can kind of get more into that. Okay. So I'm not currently doing it, but I used to work mostly with uh, vector-borne diseases. Specifically, mm-hmm. I started out with working on an experiment involving dengue fever and chikungunya. And the primary vectors we were working with were two mosquito species, Aedes Mm -hmm. albopictus and Aedes aegypti. Mm -hmm. And my duty was basically mass rear clean colonies of those two (laughs) mosquito species. Then we would, my supervisor and I, we would go into a biosafety lab and mm-hmm. we would try to see how competent these mosquitoes were in getting infected with those different viruses. What does that even mean? <laughs> like, how does- So we wanted basically to see how well they could carry the virus okay. in their bodies. Yeah. So then I can imagine that that's very difficult to do, like set up experimentally. Because oh. how oh do God, you- It would take like an entire day. <laughs> yeah. And how do you work with the mosquitoes that are- potentially carrying the disease without putting yourself in harm's way. We would have to wear a lot of uh, PPE, so Mm -hmm. personal protection equipment. So that meant full body suits all over, like covering your head, your face, your skin, everything, big boots. (laughs) Yeah. And basically we had to be really, really careful because once those mosquitoes enter the bio lab, they can't get out alive and we cannot absolutely cannot let them escape right and if one did we basically had to shut down the whole facility and make sure that we killed it yeah yeah that and how do you how do you track that because i assume you can't put little you know collars on them to figure out where they are <laughs> no we had to work in a pretty small room that was very brightly lit everything mm-hmm. was almost like sterile white because the mosquitoes are black and it made it much easier to spot them flying around if they ever got out which thankfully did not happen oh my god i that can imagine that's fine. very scary <laughs> yeah because we were mo- working with multiple strains of dengue for it and it's like oh my goodness yeah uh, that's like quite literally like biological <laughs> nightmare looking to happen yeah yeah literally biohazards that lab was not really too fun to work in because 
we could not have windows or anything. So we would go in like 7 a.m. in the morning. It was dark and leave it like maybe 10 p.m. at night, 8 p.m. if we were lucky. Yeah. During infection days. Uh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so then when you were... My first question is, how long do mosquitoes live? Shoot. It depends how warm we kept them and how often we fed them. Mm-hmm. I think if we if we allowed them to live out their entire lifespan as adults, they can live, I think it was about three months. Holy, but we really? Usually, three months? They can be surprisingly sturdy if they're well <laughs> taken okay, care so of. Okay, so in my head, Maybe they can live it was three days. Oh, that's like May... That's like mayflies and stuff. Oh my god! Yeah, they live all really, really, really short lifespans. You literally just blew my mind. That is so fascinating because I was sitting here thinking, like, oh my god, they only have two days to conduct their experiment. Like, what the heck? How can they do it? But now that it's a little bit of a longer lifespan, that makes more sense. Okay, so you've opened up more questions for me, which is a good thing. This is a podcast because I get to ask the questions. <laughs> I know From- in nature they can live like a lot shorter, like maybe two weeks. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So then when you're there in your lab, I was always told growing up that only the females are the ones that like suck blood. Is that true? Yes. Okay. Yes, that is true. When you had your, I don't know, was it a mosquito colony, I guess? Yeah. Okay. When you had your colony, are the males almost like useless for the study or how did you use them? Because with would they carry the pathogen even though they weren't really passing it along through the blood sucking? No, they would not be carrying the pathogen, but we used them basically to keep the colonies going because we would have to breed generations of them. Yeah. They were kind of useful. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't mean to imply that men aren't useful, (laughs) but then, okay. So then you also said that you feed them. How the hell were you feeding them? So we would use artificial blood feeding systems. They were like mechanized things that we would put a little bit of blood on and they would basically keep the blood warm to attract the mosquitoes to feed through an artificial membrane. Yeah. Yeah. I know. You're just opening up so many more questions for me. (laughs) I know some labs, especially since those mosquitoes and only on clean colonies, uh, they would basically just stick their arm in the cage and set a timer and let the mosquitoes feed off of them because some of those mosquitoes, they're very, very, very preferential to drinking human blood as opposed to Mm -hmm. sheep or cow blood, which we could purchase through a facility. So then if you are using whether it's human blood or you're using the artificial like feeding, like you mentioned, how are you in- ensuring that the blood that they're getting is clean and isn't going to possibly introduce another pathogen that could be like harmful to the study? Yeah. So the facility that we would purchase the blood from, they basically raise animals specifically for that purpose of once in a while they go draw some blood, the animal mm-hmm. goes on and does whatever it wants. Mm-hmm. And those are usually health tested and routinely monitored to make sure like they have no ex- other parasites, that they're kept sterile and basically healthy and happy. All they do is just lose a few pints of blood every so often. That is so fascinating. But I guess that makes sense because if you think of like at the Cincinnati Zoo where I live, they have vampire bats. They just Mm -hmm. sit in there with these giant like deli cups full of blood. And I never really thought about how they got them, but it's probably from a very similar (laughs) source. Yeah, probably. That's really cool though. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite exhibits. Oh my gosh, you just come visit, come hang out. And anyone's welcome. Actually, not anyone's welcome. Most people are welcome, but (laughs) 
don't be weird about it, you know? But yeah, it's always really cool because like they do just have like literal cups of blood that sit on the floor of this exhibit and you see Mm -hmm. them like grabbing onto the edge and drinking and it's it always has me like morbidly curious and I'm okay with blood luckily like but sometimes whenever I bring new friends to the zoo um we have to go Mm -hmm. inside the nocturnal house because it's one of my favorites and I like it's like the third exhibit in and I have to stop them and be like are you cool with blood because there's gonna be blood (laughs) yeah tell me now (laughs) yeah the vampires are coming up (laughs) yeah literally um so then when you are working with them and like you're doing feeding like do you ever offer more than one type of blood and obviously like with your study you're probably not offering your own arm but like are you offering sheep and cow and chicken or whatever to see what they prefer or do you just kind of do one so we used to use sheep i remember for the mosquitoes because they seemed to like that over blood from what my supervisor told me over what she used to just over cow oh, okay when you she said over blood used to like, like oh oops my bad but yeah when she used before she took me on she was like testing with different blood types mm-hmm. to see what they liked the best and sheep seemed to be the winner uh when i started working with the tsetse flies we used cow blood because that's what they that's what the species we worked with preferred out mm-hmm. in the wild they seemed to target unfortunately human livestock <laughs> more mm-hmm. often Hmm. So then I'm going to ask more questions about Glossina in a minute. <laughs> but before we move <laughs> off of mosquitoes, I have to know there is any truth because I feel like there's a lot of old wives tales that, that go around like insects in general, but then specifically ones we interact with like mosquitoes about them like having a preference towards one like blood type when it comes to humans. Is that true at uh-huh. all? Yes, that seems to be true. But there's also a lot of different factors uh, that influence whether they're more attracted to one person versus another. Oh, really? And a lot of that involves the smell and how big you are. Like the taller the person, the more of a like huge homing beacon you are for them. <laughs> and if the microflora you're growing on your skin, you know, like we have bacteria all over our body. Right. If you happen to have a particular, I guess, composition of that on your skin and they find that absolutely delicious, they'll... Hmm fly over to you more they also like to seem to gravitate more towards darker colors in general so if you're wearing like black dark blue mm-hmm. i know the glossina flies really love a particular shade of blue they'll just home in on you huh. same with horse flies oh yeah horse flies man i don't mess with horse flies those things really oh God, they're, me they're out. too fast and scary for their own good we had one year I go on when I was younger, I would go to a cabin in upstate New York. I mean, I guess this makes sense now that you're talking about it, but we would send a dock out like towards, you know, like a couple, I don't know, like 30 feet, 40 feet off the shore, right? Where the kids mm-hmm. would like jump off and dive in and stuff. And it had this bright green astroturf on it. And mm-hmm. that was a floating beacon for horseflies. And they weren't just like they the little ones. They were the, <laughs> the big giant, ones. like bumblebee, like yellow ones. And you would just, <laughs> oh, we would be, you know, there'd be like 15 of my cousins on this little dock. And there'd be two things people would scream. And one was horsefly. And that would get everyone <laughs> oh, off it no. immediately. And the second was wolf spider because they would live oh. underneath it. Oh, and I remember as a kid, I was still had that innate fear of those creepy crawlies. And I did not <laughs> like those. Oh, no. 
<laughs> oh no. Yeah, horse flies have very, very good vision and especially good color vision. They're very cute in on color and movement. Hmm. So, yeah, uh, that would make sense. To... A bunch of little kids in brightly colored bathing suits. Yes. That would be like, a little bit, mm, bit of a fake time for them. Yeah. They're rubbing their we're evil little hands. We're all in our <laughs> yellow, like, life jackets. <laughs> yeah, I remember we would sometimes drive out to certain places for just collecting for fun, like catch and release mm-hmm. for insects. And you would hear, well, one of our friends, she drove one of those bright blue cars, the kinds mm-hmm. that the shade of blue they particularly love. And you would hear these big black horse flies. They were over an inch long. They would just be slamming themselves against the car. Oh my God. As we I drove hate by. That. And we're like, oh my God, that's horrible. That immediately makes me think of, I'm sure you know it, the scene in Jumanji where, yes. have, yeah. where they have the giant mosquitoes. Oh, I, maybe that yeah. was part of my fear too. Because I remember watching that and being like, yeah, this is obviously the real life. Like, that's going to happen one day. Like, I got to be prepared. (laughs) (laughs) So with the mosquitoes, another question about those, actually based off of Jumanji, I remember in Jumanji, like, they were piercing the roof of the car with like, is it, would it be a proboscis essentially that they have? Or what is that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. With their proboscis. That's a proboscis. Proboscis, pardon me. I think either way, it's right to say. (laughs) Okay, cool. Well, I've seen like, obviously that's not true, but I have seen videos mostly on like advertisements or things about different like barriers for mosquitoes where their proboscis almost like bends, like if they can't puncture something to like suck the blood. Is that like Mm -hmm. a generally tough part of their body? Because like we mentioned before with other inverts, like they're, they're relatively fragile, but it seems like that area has more give and has to be almost like fortified to be able to pierce skin. Yes. It's a very, it's a very specialized part on their body. So it acts almost like, what is it? A needle that can split into two and it's covered Hmm. in different specialized mouth parts. So it's like covered in the sheath. Yeah. And you see like the traditional mosquito image of like them sucking on the skin and one part looks like it's bent backwards. So that's the Mm -hmm. sheath pulling backwards. And then that opens up to two more specialized little mouth parts that act like little moving saws almost like they're cutting into your skin and this oh, they can God. move around to try and aim from a blood vessel it's like really cool to watch on video but at the same time when you see it happen in person it happens so fast yeah like within like a second or so it's not just like a straight hypodermic needle when they go to feed would they generally find like one i don't know one prey item i guess it is and like just feed off of one person and then wait until they need to eat again or would they go from like person to person and kind of fill up almost like a bumblebee goes from flower to flower it depends on the mosquito species but they can do both i've found out that the 80s egypti for example they like to drink a little bit here and there here and there off certain yeah. people but albo picks more like a bar crawl you like to just yeah exactly like a little blood bar crawl but albo picks <laughs> seem to just stick on one person fill up and then just go and then sleep somewhere else and just digest it all and it, it seems like i guess i've never really thought of this i literally this is just me asking mosquito questions that is the podcast <laughs> i'm just so fascinated no worry so when they are like when they drink their blood they get their fill 
they drink so much like compared to body mm-hmm. size. It seems like they really, and when I say they, I'm thinking of whatever we have in like this region of the United States. I have no idea what kind of species of mosquito that would be. So I'm just only kind of referencing just my generic description of a mosquito. No worries. How, how long before they need to feed again? Like, is it long, like a snake, like a week, or is it just a day or same day or what? It can be like a day or two. I think we used to feed ours every three days, like our mm-hmm. colonies every mm-hmm. three days, just like put on the little blood feeding machine, go and go. Hmm. But if left to their own devices, I know sometimes some of the females seem to be a little bit more risk engaging. They would do that multiple times in a day. And then the next day they go out and do the same thing. Oh, wow. Just getting play. I know, right? Usually they will take, they will on, only some species. There are some that actually don't drink blood, mm-hmm. but they'll usually only drink blood when they're producing eggs. The ones I worked with though, they prefer blood over sugar water. So they also seem to use that as some sort of sustenance source. Yeah. Not just so, for reproduction. So when you say that they would drink other things like the sugar water, is that what you'd be feeding the males? Because I imagine that the males aren't eating the blood, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're just little nectar feeders. Oh, those are almost like cute. <laughs> yeah, it is really cute. They have really fuzzy antennae. So it looks like mm-hmm. they have two little feathers sticking out in front of their head. And so how would you like essentially culture the population like would you so when i think of like mosquito larva everyone i love it It happens like (laughs) at least once a summer where someone's like look at all these tadpoles i found in my pool and you're like oh god that's not tadpoles (laughs) "Mm." yeah it's like that's not a tadpole i'm sorry that's not what you want at all (laughs) so would you um like how do you how do you encourage breeding behavior and and then care for the babies or you just kind of let them do their own thing naturally within this very sterile environment yeah so what we would do we would raise separate colonies of males Mm -hmm. only cages and female only cages and when we wanted to breed them we would take a certain number of males and put them into the female cage like we would have specific ratios Mm -hmm. and we would essentially just let them mate for a few days and then put in little containers with water and lined with paper towels so Mm -hmm. the females could go deposit eggs on the paper towels Mm -hmm. after that we would take the containers out collect the eggs count them store them in plastic bags because Mm -hmm. the species we worked with their eggs are really tough they can stay they can stay in storage for maximum six months before they started going bad oh wow and if we yeah if if we wanted to hatch mosquito larvae all we had to do is just put those eggs in a little flask vacuum seal it and that would basically force the mosquitoes to just hatch right out of the egg after a couple hours after a couple hours yep they can be really fast if they want to the fresher the egg the faster they'll go holy shit i mean i guess they are coming out as more of a larval state so it's not like a full-fledged mosquito but that still seems Mm -hmm. intense yeah we would have to wait for the eggs to sort of dry out a little bit so it wasn't like when they're laid immediately to being born as a baby or hatching as a baby yeah that's gotta be (laughs) that's crazy yeah we would give them like a few weeks or so so i need to i need to know how you possibly separate males and females of these mosquitoes because that has to be tedious yes it was (laughs) that was the majority of my work or time spent was separating Mm -hmm. the pupae of the mosquitoes and usually that's pretty easy to do there Mm -hmm. are now machines that can sort the pupae because the female pupae are much larger than the male ones yeah that's how you do it 
Unfortunately, our lab did not have such machines. So my supervisor and I would sit there for hours with little counters in our hands and we would pipette the pupae up one by one and put them into cups like this one's a female this one's a male and like so on and so forth until we caught all of them oh my god so how many when and you and we were raising like trays of 300 larvae and that's at exactly what was gonna ask. we had like we had like 25 trays of them and i felt like i was dying <laughs> counting them for hours and hours and hours oh my god okay so from when the eggs are laid and like assuming you incubate them to hatch like at point A mm-hmm. to when they are finally a full mosquito. What mm-hmm. is that timeline generally, at least in the lab? I th- think I remember it had to be around two weeks. If we cooked them at maximum temperature without killing them. <laughs> cooked them. We tried, it, we, tried this, <laughs> we tried this at one point. They would hatch mm-hmm. and like from egg to being adult, they would be ready in a week. But that seemed to render them sterile. That was an interesting experiment. Mm-hmm. But, That's got to be yeah, disappointing usually... to realize that happened. Oh, we were kind of aiming to see like what would happen. Oh, really? Hmm. To them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, two weeks seemed to be the average time from egg to full adult that was already reproducing. Mm-hmm. So if the experiment went wrong, that would be a lot of heartbreak and time wasted. Yeah. As- so I could keep asking you like a million questions about mosquitoes just because I'm morbidly curious, but uh, I'm curious, like, what was your actual, what was your goal of the the research that you were doing? Were you looking to see like how the mosquitoes reacted to the, the viruses or like, what was your goal for what you were doing? That was more my supervisor experience. I remember she was trying to see, I think how, I can't remember, I think how certain environmental conditions, if and how they affected the was it competency of the mosquitoes mm-hmm. basically to carry and be infected with the virus. Like if we raise them at 75 degrees as opposed to we raise them at 90 degrees or mm-hmm. 60 degrees. Like how it would different. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I'm so fascinated and I really wish. Okay. So if people haven't listened already, you have to go back and listen to episode 18, where I interviewed Gina Zwicky, who is studying malaria in the Saban Anol um, for her master's or maybe her doctorate. I'm sorry, Gina, I don't remember. Um, But like having her talk about her mosquito research and now listening to you talk, like, I wish I could put you both in a room and be like, tell me about mosquitoes. (laughs) Because I'm so morbidly curious (laughs) once again. Her work sounds very cool. I'll have to give that a listen. Yeah, she's incredible. She's she's amazing. And and the work she did was like very, very interesting to learn about because I just while I understand that malaria is a parasite until I talked with her. I didn't really like, I feel like I knew malaria was a parasite, but I didn't really have (laughs) an understanding of what that meant until I spoke with her, Mm -hmm. um, which was super, super very. Yeah, it's a very cool and very complicated group of little parasites. Yeah, absolutely. And I never want to deal with them in person ever. I will simply exactly. listen to my friends talk <laughs> about them. <laughs> so then the other um, the other animal that you were doing some research on was the Glossina fly, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You sound much more excited about that one. <laughs> so those so guys are doing- mosquitoes, honestly, they're just... They one of the forefronts of the vector-borne diseases uh, research subjects. Mm-hmm. Glossina, not so much. Really? Yeah. So what what were because, you doing with them? So specifically, what my lab was 
doing, my supervisor, he wanted to look at the reproductive sort of the reproductive and sort of physiology side of these flies as opposed to, you know, the vector competency and the diseases they can carry. And yeah. if for those who are curious, the Glossina CT flies are responsible for spreading the African sleeping sickness are in Africa. And so I don't know that sickness. Can you do you mind give me an overview on that? Yeah. So it's also called African trypanosomiasis, and they're caused by little parasites in the genus trypanosoma. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is, let me make sure I'm doing this right. There's one called trypanosoma brucei, mm-hmm. and that one, I know there are different subspecies. So there's one called trypanosoma brucei gambiense. Mm-hmm. It's mostly found in Western and Central Africa. There's another called Trypanosoma brucei rodensis. I can't say it. it That's con- okay. I'm not going to correct you. <laughs> in like Eastern and Southern Africa. These, can, okay. these two parasites can infect humans. And I think, I don't remember whether one or both can affect livestock. And so what is that? What does the disease actually do to humans and then and or livestock? All right. So... Okay, really fast. When you're okay, this is my dumb question. I'm gonna stop saying things are dumb. This is just my question. When you are when you are referring to a a parasite like born pathogen, such as this what you're talking about, do you refer to it as a disease or as a virus or just what's like generally accepted? Uh, I call it a disease because yeah, disease. Usually when you're talking about the vector borne diseases insect is basically harboring something that can be passed to humans, whether it's a little parasite, whether it's a virus or mm-hmm. bacteria. Okay. So Man, so I should have paid more attention in sixth grade biology. <laughs> no worries. No, it's okay. <laughs> but basically the sleeping sickness, you it's characterized mostly by lots and lots of urges to sleep. You feel weakened. You feel delirious. You feel more anxious. Mm-hmm your attention spans shot, you feel much more apathy. In rare cases, you get like increased aggression, mania, sometimes confusion. Mm-hmm. Your motor control starts lacking. You start stumbling more. You feel more weak. You can't speak as well. And your senses don't start working as well too. That's yeah. why, unfortunately, that's how it earned its name. A lot of the patients that get afflicted with sleeping sickness, they do start sleeping a lot more because they get so weak. They feel so confused. They feel so dazed. And is this something that there's any, I don't know, any cure for or any treatment for? There is treatment for it. And if I remember, there is no cure though. There is no test of cure for it. They're mostly monitored for up to, I think around 24 months for signs of relapsing. And They have to get continuously tested for reoccurrence of like the symptoms pop out, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But that's fascinating. Think, yeah. The recommended drug for the first stage, I think for Gambiense, it's called pentamidine. Mm-hmm. Other drugs are used, but I think it's like, it's not commercially available in some countries, but you can yeah. get it from the CDC. Mm-hmm. It's, kind of a brutal and long, long treatment in order to be deemed clear of trypanosomiasis. Hmm. So then with 
with the glossy yeah, flies, <laughs> what were you looking at with them? Are you looking at the same kind of similar with the with the mosquitoes as far as like how well they carry the illness or was it something else? Oh, it was way less focused on the disease aspect. We were looking how they reproduce because these flies give birth to live maggots instead oh of laying God. eggs. What? Yeah. And how they would only give flies? birth to one at a time. These flies are pretty chunky. I would say like maybe half an inch big. There's a species that I wanted my boss to bring in, but I don't think we could. That yeah. It's super big. And the name is slipping for me at the moment, but these were the ones that would feed on elephants, giraffes, you know, the really big African megafauna. Yeah. Okay. I I am fascinated. I just pulled up um, images of it and I'm seeing them give live birth. Tell me more. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> one of my boss's videos is up there that you saw. Yeah. yeah. So what they do, it's almost like... It's almost like how some snakes give live birth. They kind of just incubate one egg at a time, though, inside their own body. Yeah. And after a certain amount of time, the mom gives birth. Mm-hmm. And she nourishes the baby inside of her with some sort of like milk protein produced by milk glands. We were also looking to see like the composition of this uh, milk gland fluid and the protein. But like, what is it similar to in other flies? Like, how did they evolve this sort of like reproductive system for the flies? Okay, it's so really is, cool. I wish we did more work on it. Yeah, or at least so, I wish I stayed in that lab longer. Okay. So do these flies I'm I know the name of these and now I'm trying to figure out why. After the maggot is born, are these a mm-hmm. burrowing fly? The like ma- yeah. They're not the adults, but yeah, the babies will burrow. They'll in, just go right into the dirt and pupate. <laughs> okay. So I was thinking when I when you first mentioned these or when I first looked them up, I was thinking they were similar to bot flies, but they're different, right? So they don't go like into yeah. um, a host. No, they will not. They just go right into the dirt. <laughs> okay, that's definitely better because I'm looking at an image of the I guess the pupa, um, and that'd be so uh-huh. terrifying inside your body. I Ooh, no, I yeah. distinctly remember the first time I watched. This is a this is a gross. This is a trigger warning for anyone who's <laughs> afraid of this. Just fast forward a little bit. I distinctly remember the first time I saw a video of a bot fly being pulled from like a kitten's nose. Oop, yep. And I've it was seeing some of those horrific things. Oh my God. It scared the hell out of me. When I just Google like the Glossina fly or the Tsetse fly, mm-hmm. one of the first things that pops up is like a map of Africa and where they are, right? And it says tsetse infested areas. Are these a native species to Africa? And have they like blossomed in the last few years or have they always been a problem? They've always been there. They're native. Okay. I think possibly with, you know, global warming, climate change, however you want to call it, mm-hmm. as it overall gets warmer, their range is probably spreading. I know certain species though are pretty restricted to riparian areas or more locations with an abundance of fresh water, higher humidity. So mm-hmm. I think it really depends which ones we're looking at. The species okay. I, uh, I was working with was Glossina morsitans, morsitans mm-hmm. if we want to get down to subspecies. Mm-hmm. But I think those guys... I remember the lab being really warm and really humid. I'm not sure if they're the ones who have range expansion or not. Yeah, because the the map that I'm looking at right now is showing like a pretty even distribution all across Central Africa. Mm-hmm. 
And it looks like almost between like a specific longitudinal, no, latitude. Which one's flat? Flatitude. So that's, oh my God, that's the east to west one. That's how I remembered it in grade school is it was flatitude because it went across. Hey, it helps. <laughs> it helps. And it looks like they are very closely related to where the, like the cattle distribution is. Like that's the map. Yes. That we're looking at. That's very yes. fascinating. <laughs> so when you yep. did the study with their reproduction, I'm very fascinated by this like milk-like substance that you're mentioning because uh-huh. in my, you know, you grow up and you hear like milk means mammal. Like mm-hmm. that's kind of the assumption that I always made. So is this common to see in other flies or is this a very unique thing to the Glossina? The Glossina are not the only flies that produce a milk-like substance. That if I don't know why that terrifies of- me. That is horrifying. <laughs> like, they're not going to be the next thing at Starbucks. Insects too. I I hate that. I really like, hate I don't that. think that's a sustainable product. <laughs> yeah, I'm so like, you're yeah, drinking my soy to- milk latte. It's like next thing. Can I get the tzitzi latte? Thank you so much. <laughs> nice. Nice cow milk alternative. Yeah, well, maybe it doesn't, definitely doesn't benefit the cows at all. <laughs> the flies are like, mm, no. I can't even imagine the time it would take to milk a tiny fly udder, but um, yeah. Okay, so tell me more about this milk. Um, <laughs> okay, so Glossina and their closely related family, the louse flies or the kids, you mm-hmm. may have heard of them. They're called Hippobosidae. As a family, they also produce milk and they too have a similar reproductive system to the glossina. They'll also give birth to a live maggot and the maggot immediately okay. goes down to the ground, burrows and pupates. Hmm. So how like immediately after birth, it goes down to the ground? Like almost immediately. They'll start searching hmm. for a place to burrow down. So when the milk-like substance that's being produced essentially like i guess it's not in utero because it's not a uterus <laughs> i don't know what the term would be i think actually it might be the uterus but the milk glands are kind of a strange sort of stringy looking organ and they basically yeah they, i think they feed into the uterus let me double check this see I'm if i got so, this right is there a fly uterus uh, yeah there is a little fly uterus it's kind of kind of similar, but not quite similar to the mammalian one. I I literally it was like my 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 jaws dropped. <laughs> so I feel like is, everything I've been told is a lie. Is there a way I can send you a link so you can see it yourself? Yeah, because, yeah. Do you want you can put it in the chat right. or you can um, put it over Facebook and then I'll make sure to post it with okay. the podcast okay. so people can look at it. Here's a little sketch of what it looks like. What? Yeah. Oh my God. Yep. That so is milk glands so feed into the uterus and the little larva sits in there. Okay, so it's almost like it's an umbilical. Like the milk glands are like the umbilicus. Almost, yeah. It's very, very interesting to look at. Okay, so I think that the the image you sent me is in Spanish. So this yeah. is the image I'll post. Oops. But this, no, don't say oops. It's totally fine. So this, okay. So people, if you're listening, just take a moment to pull up the image because this is very interesting. So this top, like two, the little tubes. two blue tubes. Uh, is that the sperm? Like where the sperm is Yeah, produced? the sperm. Yeah. So the organ is called the spermatheca. And that's when the female fly basically mates with the male. That's where she stores the sperm. Oh, okay. And then does she essentially like just not i guess impregnate herself once so she has one maggot at a time Mm -hmm. yeah so she can control that 
oh my god i literally this is blowing my mind (laughs) (laughs) that's what i love about insects you learn something new every day i I feel so i don't even know where to go from here (laughs) now all of the questions i had prepared no longer matter i need to know about these milk flies (laughs) okay in a typical lifespan of the glossina like the species that you were studying did you like how long are the females alive and like how quickly do they start reproducing and how many babies can they generally have oh man i know the record for in our lab for the larvae produce i think we had one female produce six babies and that's quite a lot for them usually they will not the lab ones i will have to little disclaimer they do not live or produce as much as the wild ones because they are severely inbred that would make sense yeah yeah that i mean that isn't i know in the wild they're pretty well lived like they can produce up to 31 broods over their entire lifespan whereas the lab ones are like really pathetic it's so it's really sad is a brood a single maggot i feel so bad for it as a maggot but i guess that's what it is Yeah, yeah, it it really is a maggot. One brood is one maggot, and they can usually produce about four per year. We push it a little bit more with the ones in the lab. Wow, this is so fascinating. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) so with the the milk that is being produced, what is that like? What is it? Like, what is it like a high protein, like high fat to get the maggot maturing is it like very high in water for hydration like what is it really made up of to help this process along it has a lot of fat in it and yeah. i know i remember like fat is the main component there's some protein in there and some other little trace like amino acids and such mm-hmm. it's don't remember what the composition is like compared to like mammalian milk for example mm-hmm it's cool. It's it's almost like a blood to milk factor. <laughs> That's what the female flies really are. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not. I'm trying to be very professional, but I'm truly losing my mind. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's really cool stuff. Like when I was yeah. doing this, I was like, "Wow, I cannot believe I get the opportunity to work with this stuff." I literally just texted my <laughs> just texted out of the blue to my friend group chat, and I said in all caps, "Did you know some flies produce milk?" <laughs> And they're like, what are uh-huh. you talking about? And I'm like, this is so important right now. Hey, wow. some roaches have been known to secrete milk. Okay, so then this milk-like substance, do they have any purpose for it outside of like rearing the young? And is it shown in any, like I know that sometimes in mammals, like some males can produce it, can produce milk as well. Um, or is this very unique just for reproduction and in the female specimens? Yeah, it's just very unique for the females in reproduction. They do not produce it anytime outside of developing a little larva. And I don't think there's any, I don't think if there's any studies shown if there was any in the males, because the sad reality is that not much funding is going into this area of research, which is Mm -hmm. a shame because I think it should. It's Mm -hmm. mostly a lot of the funding for insects that transmit diseases is mostly focused on the disease aspect mm-hmm. because you know it directly affects humans people want to tackle that first yeah i guess that makes sense but yeah we don't want to forget about the other things because there's so much so much more to the world than humans you know <laughs> 
even though right? we have a hard time remembering that sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm going to ask you the last question about these milk flies. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and then I do want to talk <laughs> about some of the reptile related work that you're doing. Cause I'm super interested in that. So when you were doing your research with these, um, specifically in the lab about reproduction, what was like the favorite thing that you learned or that you got to do with the animals or with the study? Like most exciting thing I learned or something I found out about the flies myself is both. what you're asking. Tell or me both. both. Okay. All the above. Both. So I think the most interesting part for me in the lab was when we would collect the flies and we would basically scan them to produce mm-hmm. 3D models so we can kind of reconstruct the uterus from inside out. And build it from there so we could see what exactly was happening there along with dissecting the flies to see like how everything fits, how everything works. Together. It's just like, how do you dissect so a fly? It's got to be like be the carefully. tiniest scalpel. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I was using the tiniest pair of scissors and scalpels. Oh my God. I wonder, oh my God. Those must be so small. Okay. And yeah. then just another question. Like, I'm curious because when I have spoken with other people who worked in labs, there's like a lot of ethics that goes into like animal welfare when you're working with any sort of live participant in the study. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How does that relate to insects? Like, is there like a standard of ethics for working with flies? And if you do need to dissect one, how you humanely euthanize, or is it kind of up to the lab? It is, uh, there is a little standard of how we raise the flies and how we basically keep them sort Mm -hmm. of, you know, sterile and prevent escapes, but it's less strict in terms of the ethics side, unlike mammals, birds, et cetera, fish. Mm-hmm. insects as long as we you know put them down the traditional way either by gassing or freezing it's i would say compared to when i used to work in a lab with mice it's much less strict hmm. the main concerns are preventing escapes yeah that makes sense and then i guess okay then here's my other question i keep saying it's my last question so then how do you provide ventilation in a room that's housing mosquitoes or other sorts of insects like this especially insects that fly while also preventing escape through like an air duct or or any something like that yeah so we had specialized uh ventilation systems in our glossina lab for mm-hmm. the biosafety lab there are sort of different air pressure systems and different mm-hmm. layers of let's say different rooms you have to go to and barriers that the insects yeah. would have to attempt to go through to escape mm-hmm. since we weren't working with diseases in glossina and they would not they would have a really hard time surviving if they did escape mm-hmm. because it's definitely not warm or humid enough for them and reproduce so slow. The standards were a little less like strict, but there so were definitely like, different layers for them to get out. Like, yeah. We had to walk through different sets of doors mm-hmm. and all the vents were covered and there were little like insect traps always in every room just to lure them in i mean obviously this is like very rudimentary but i think about when i go to like a butterfly house at a zoo Mm -hmm. or an aquarium and you walk through like the chains that like sweep any Uh butterflies off you because you have to do things like that like air pressure systems and stuff that would like force anything on you off yeah we had uh something like that and we also had a lot of different screen doors metal doors glass Mm -hmm. doors that sort of stuff yeah to run through just just a true madhouse (laughs) yeah yeah and usually we always had had someone with us so we would kind of like spot check each other to make sure a fly wasn't hitchhiking on us Mm -hmm. 
oh my gosh, you have to put your hair up, make sure nothing, nothing yeah. can get through. Nothing like that, uh, yep. like that um, cicada I was telling you about. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. It's like having one of those things, like just thinking about one getting out is like scary because they're just so big and fast. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I do want to get back to a little bit more about your work with reptiles specifically. I want to talk about the beak snakes you've been working with yeah. because when I asked you for your info, you said that you have a twice bred Ramphiophis rostratus. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Okay. And so what is that species? So the Ramphiophis rostratus are a group of Lampo what's it called lamprophyid snakes mm-hmm. also known as in the subfamily examophyines and they're a rear fanged group of snakes that live in africa mm-hmm. the ones i work with are also known as the rufus beak snakes which mm-hmm. unfortunately shares the same common name as ramphiophis oxyrhynchus that's and like exactly what i pulled the- up when i was looking at it yeah yeah, and Rostratus is the one that has the dark eye stripes. Okay. Yeah, and it looks it like the um, annoying sometimes. It looks like <laughs> eyeliner. Yeah, it does. We sometimes call them little goth snakes. Hmm. They're so, very fun and active. So, what drew you to these specifically? Back to the Reptiles magazine, I remember reading this old, old report of someone who said he managed to get some mm-hmm. and how they would just sit in his hands basically and periscope around yeah and that he managed to breathe them and i thought just reading his entire article it sounded like a very fun species to work with mm-hmm. and 13 13 year old me was just like hooked on it instantly mm-hmm. and i was waiting years and years and years and years later until i moved out of my parents house i was like all right I'm going to start looking to see if anyone still sells these. Mm-hmm. And did you, were you able to find captive, captive specimens to start working with? No, all of them were long-term captives by various other people who got them as imports. I said, I, there was only one other person I found out later on who was breeding them. His name is Aaron Sloan. Yeah, that's the only guy I knew of at the time. I'm pretty sure he still is maybe the only one I know of who still breeds them on and off. So when you, you're like, okay, this is the species I want. And then you recognize that it's, it's not a species that either a lot of people keep, or there's a lot of info on. How did you educate yourself on proper care? And then what was like the trial and error like to get these to breed in captivity? So basically for their care, what I did that point, I got a few more reptiles before I decided, you know, maybe I'm ready for these guys, mm-hmm. was looking up their native range. So that meant hitting Google Scholar a lot and then hitting different various sites where they would take uh, not only temperature readings, but sort of the humidity readings and sort of day and night cycles. So I mm-hmm. think I used mainly the site timeanddate.com to sort of monitor those cycles year by year, month by month, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Because even though while I read that one breeding report and the Reptiles Magazine article, I was like, you know what? I need to dig a bit more. I need Mm -hmm. to find out what's going on. I also looked up various people on Facebook to kind of just trawl through old posts and stuff, see what they did, how to keep them, Mm -hmm. and just kind of mishmash a little care care guide for myself Mm -hmm. and see... You know, maybe this might work. See how it goes. So how did you care for them? So when I'm looking at it, there's not a lot on Wikipedia. So I'm like looking at 
a website called <laughs> the reptiledatabase.org. And it seems like it's is it, is it a more fossorial species? Because this whole page is in French and I did not do well in French in high school. So... <laughs> It's okay. I took Spanish. But uh, yeah, they're more fossil, I would say. But if you give them climbing opportunities, I've seen them like climb branches, stuff. Mm-hmm. And my cages are like six feet long, two feet tall, two feet wide. I think okay. they use every single inch of them. I find them even sometimes trying to get into the electrical wiring where I have like nail, like used cable clips to just kind of hook the cords and stuff to the cage tops. And I see them trying to get up there. I'm like, stop. Stop doing that. Yeah, I hate that. I, oh God, I love how good they are at unplugging things. Like why my snakes. You find a light unplugged one day, and you're just like, why? Why do you do well, that? Well, they, keep, they <laughs> unplug their heat panels. And I'm like, do you want to be cold? Because you can be cold. Doesn't bother me. Right? <laughs> so then when you, when you have that like six foot by two foot by two foot enclosure, is this for a pair? Are you keeping a trio in there? It's just one. What do you have in there? So I used to keep pairs in there and i would separate them during feeding because they have such a strong feeding response Mm -hmm. and they're so cued into movement i didn't want any fights to break out yeah absolutely i've seen them also drop their food and then go after the other one still carrying the food i'm like this is a pain yeah that seems very stressful yeah but currently i have only just the females in those big cages and the males are in smaller ones like four by two by twos okay so then are they, do they readily eat rodents or do you have to provide alternate prey items for them? They will readily eat anything. Oh, really? Anything that's... and everything. They will try to eat anything that I've given to them. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> they are not cookie at all. And do you vary yeah, their, their nice. diet because of that? Yeah, I try my best to. So they do get mice. They do get quail. Um, after I've talked with Travis Wyman a bit, I've also tried like whole like, frozen thawed silver side fish to them just like as a like what if they take it and they mm-hmm. did nice i've given them iguana reptilinks before mm-hmm. i've also given them frog reptilinks as well since i do have gargo geckos and sometimes you get the odd parthenogenic baby mm-hmm. that is i guess i don't know how you call it stillborn in the egg they will yeah. eat that too that's awesome circle of life <laughs> you know yeah so are most of the animals that you have now, are they long-term captive or have you been able to, you said you've been able to produce twice your own uh, captive bred animals? Yeah. So all my adults are long-term captives. The babies mm-hmm. are captive born that I've produced myself. So far, That's I have awesome. two unrelated generations and I'm taking a small break. I need to yeah. plan more space out. Yeah. So um, how many babies did you get from those two, those two pairings? My first clutch I have nine babies. She laid 10 eggs, but one was a weird looking one mm-hmm. and it died like early on into the incubation process. And I kept how many? I kept five back. Travis has one of them, mm-hmm. some, and three of them went to other people. Okay. That's super cool. I think that's, gosh, I think the best part of being in this hobby is being able to share animals with your friends. I said that the yeah. other day to some people. Like, I think some of my favorite animals I have are like, from friends because it's so cool to be able to be like yeah they produce this and i know how hard they worked on the adults and and now i can have the babies and oh god yeah it's such a cool it's very sweet i definitely have some animals from some of my closest friends and it's really nice having that privilege yeah just sort of you know have that bond with their friends yeah absolutely when you got into the um, these 
beak snakes specifically, you had already had experience with arachnids. So you kind of, I assume had an understanding of, of venom and toxicity and, and all of that. So was this your first rear fang species? And then what is like the effect if, if someone was bitten by this kind of animal? I, I don't know very much about it at all. No worries. Oh, I also forgot to answer part of your question from previously, but the second clutch was just four eggs. Okay, just four. <laughs> and yeah. I got all four babies. That's awesome. Yeah. That's but, um, yeah, they were my f- they were my first uh, rear fang species. And I did do a little bit of digging on that. And mm-hmm. admittedly, in the beginning, I wasn't wearing gloves because they were just very inoffensive and not seems too inclined to bite. But later on, I got a myself a pair of those, what was it, rose thorn gloves to protect gardeners and such? Yeah. Yep. To work with them because as they got more settled in and as they got more comfortable with me, I noticed that strong feeding response got kind of annoying when it came to working in their cages because they would see me going in to get their water bowl, for example, and they would come out <laughs> and check out what's going on. Yeah. And I've had one or two of them like, sniff my gloves rather suspiciously and i'm like don't mm-hmm. you dare think about it yeah and you're like i'm glad <laughs> you're comfortable but maybe calm down yep yep yeah I, i've seen them also try one in particular she's a big female her name is mango and she likes to surf the glass doors with her mouth chewing on the door oh <laughs> if God. i'm moving in a particular way like walking around in the reptile room that's she is a so hungry, bizarre hungry yeah, that's yeah gotta it's, be so it's quite funny to, to watch Oh my gosh. Well, Nicole, we are like reaching the end of our time. And so I just want to check in if there's anything, any other things that you are working on that you want to talk to us about. I'm sorry to end like suddenly, but we talk so much about mosquitoes and I have to meet my family for dinner. So (laughs) no worries. I do at one point want to try and breed this one species called like the African hooknose snake, uh, Scaphiophis albopunctatus. I have three large adults two females and one male and i'm hoping 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 maybe something might happen mm-hmm. soon because i'm cycling them along with the beak snakes again yeah it's something i do whether i want to breed them or not mm-hmm. fingers crossed something gets out of that so when you're just okay so then the follow-up question so with these species that are a little bit more rare and you may not have as much information on how to cycle or how to like successfully breed where do you usually get most your info about that like are you focusing on google scholar or are you finding mentors in the hobby i am relying on google scholar and the time and date seasonal websites just to monitor like if i got the habitat town maybe i can narrow it down to a few locations where they're updating those sorts of information and just Mm -hmm. follow the seasons try to mimic them that's That's my best bet oh gosh because i have tried yeah i've tried posting like maybe two or three times i'm not the most active in groups trying to ask whether people have worked with these before Mm -hmm. and it's a special kind of frustrating to see on the post seen by x number of people yeah (laughs) but no one puts a comment yeah i (laughs) definitely get that and that just it just makes me feel like I don't want to talk to people anymore. <laughs> that makes me, yeah, that, I get that. I get so frustrated. I'm like, come on, someone has to have an answer or know someone who has an answer. Right? <laughs> yeah. right? And then when you succeed, suddenly all these people come out of the woodwork to talk to you. And you're just like, I personally feel like I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because 
if you had this information and you're finally coming to me to ask, it's like, I was already so discouraged from the beginning. I just, I don't know. I don't know mm-hmm. how to feel about that. Yeah. Oh gosh. Well, keep kicking ass because someday someone else is going to ask a question. Everyone's going to have to point at you for the answer. So you're doing a girl. <laughs> so I always like to, to kind of end and ask people if you had a young girl who told you that they were interested in maybe getting involved in insects or entomology and, and all that stuff like what and, and then herpetology obviously what advice do you mm-hmm. have for her as she gets started keep a hold of that interest and don't let go of it just keep following what you like is what i say like no matter what people say about it like the animals are weird gross etc just you will find other people who will appreciate the same things don't ever oh, give yeah. up on that hope. You'll find friends that will have those interests. Heck yeah, you will. That's awesome. Well, Nicole, yeah. it has been such a pleasure to speak with you. I'm so glad we could finally make it work. If people do want to reach out, I know you're not super involved in social media, but is there a good way for people to get a hold of you? Uh, yeah, you can either find me on Instagram or Facebook. I might take a while to get back. So like you said, I'm not too active on there, but I'll try my best. Okay. No worries. Well, we really, really appreciate your time. And thanks everyone for listening. Once again, I'm your host, Dominique DeFalco of DeFalco Reptiles. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram. Like you can find me at my address if you want to. I don't really care. Like I said, I already invited everyone to come hang out because I love making new friends. (laughs) So also please feel free to follow the podcast at Modern Medusa Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And we will talk at you next week. Thanks so much, Nicole. Thank you for hosting me, Dominique. It's good to see talking to you. Yeah, such a pleasure. Thanks for listening. 